Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Well, some people like to dismiss slavery like it was nothing. But you see, slavery, it can never be forgotten. Some people not gonna like what me say. But me, I go say it anyway. We are go talk about slavery and the effects of it today. Some people just don't want to know about 400 years ago. But the thing about slavery, it's affecting people now. I tell you no lie. When I see a film about slavery, water comes to my eyes. Peace and welcome to the Abolitionist Daily. It is the new week. Uh, this is March 2nd, the new month. March 2nd, 2015, and we are checking in today on several uh, breaking news stories and some uh, continuing news stories that have been going on in the abolitionist movement and prison culture, uh, prison abuse and, and torture and murder, slave labor, all these types of things we discuss here every day. Um, I'm your host, Johan and Elia. This is the Black Talk Radio Network, operating in 100% community radio status, as we are funded solely by the listeners. So if you're listening and you're joining us today, whether it be in this live broadcast or later in a podcast, thank you for your support and understanding that it is 2015 and we are in the midst of the Black Talk Radio Network 2015 fundraiser. Just want to start off the program reminding you of that. If you hear anything on this broadcast that you learn from or that you feel is compelling for you to become an activist, to become an abolitionist, if it's something that you want to share with anyone that you hear on this broadcast, new information, something that confirms what you already suspected or what you've heard elsewhere, if you're moved, if you're disgusted, if you're delighted at some of the, the breakthroughs we talk about or some of the people in the news that we talk about that are out here making change and making a difference for people's lives, if these things move you and you, and you plan on coming back ever again in the future, just remember that this is community-supported radio, and the future starts with and continues with you being part of that. So today on the Abolitionist Daily, we're going to take a look at a trial that is going to be starting here uh, very soon for three Attica guards that beat a man so bad they broke both of his legs, they broke his shoulder, they broke his eye socket, they broke several ribs, Three men, all near 300 pounds or over 300 pounds, against a five foot eight brother that's about 170 pounds. And um, I often complain 
about police brutality, about uh, guard on inmate violence and terrorism, often complain about authorities and oath takers and people that have signed contracts of employment to work for organizations who are designed to protect and serve who get away with criminal behavior and at best get reassigned. But hardly ever do we see any uh, criminal implications attached to their behavior. Well, these gents from Attica apparently uh, went too far or someone feels that it's okay to go ahead and sacrifice them. You know, collateral damage does occur sometimes so that the uh, system, the normal system can remain intact and we'll sacrifice a few to point fingers to and say, well, uh, sometimes we do convict. I don't know. We'll discuss all of that though. The Attica, the Attica situation is, um, going to be our story today. Um, and then we're going to check in with the brothers and sisters that are part of the movement, free Alabama movement, um, augmented by the free Mississippi movement, uh, the Ida B. Wells coalition against, uh, prison slavery and the abolitionist movement overall, just supporting the free Alabama movement as they went into their work stoppage on yesterday, uh, Sunday, March 1st, 2015. And we've discussed all last week with, um, two other, so-called riots that made the news in uh, one in South Carolina at Lee Correctional and then another one at um, Wallace County, which started almost two weeks ago, well, a week and a half ago, uh, Wallace County, uh, Texas. And we discussed all week about the prison labor aspect, which is what kicks off the the need for officials to term these situations as riots and go in with riot gear and go in and rough up and terrorize and and make life real hard for the inmates that are simply saying, you can't continue to exploit me for labor and you generate all these hundreds and hundreds of millions and billions of dollars off of me. And there's no protections. There's horrible living conditions and no one is willing to address or see to those living conditions and those abuses and the lack of medical care. But when they stop working, it becomes a riot and they have to get beat back into shape. So we're going to check in with the Free Alabama Movement. Um, I'll give you some of their words right from their own mouths and give you information on how you can uh, connect and build with the movement and be a part of history, be on the right side of history. Because it's going to shake out eventually. As all things do, as the, as the old folks used to say, this too shall pass. And I was, uh, reminding someone just over this past weekend in a conversation about their denial of modern day slavery and denial of the connection between the same old slavery of the 1500s and 1600s and 1700s and 1800s and how it continued on through the early 1900s and took on different forms and different titles and different ways that it was used and different people got involved and began to become the benefactors of it. 
So yes, there were some changes, but it's still the same thing. It's still the same institution. It still serves the same purpose and it's still in place now as a system of control and revenue generation. So we'll talk about the free Alabama movement and we'll talk about how the people that were being held as slaves back in the day, the general society looked at their situation as not being dire straits. And we'll just talk about the scapegoat mentality that is prevalent in white supremacy and in assimilating into a white supremacist system, how so many people of color, and even though that they're overly represented in the system, in the uh, incarceration and modern day slavery system, how they're able to parrot talking points of the dominant culture and find themselves incredulous, just like the culture was incredulous towards plantation slavery of old. So we'll discuss that. Um, we're going to do a mental illness segment, uh, take two. If you follow the program since the beginning, um, we had a, uh, had tried to address it on a previous day and we just ran out of time, ran long on some other segments and I just wasn't able to get to discussing the, the situation of mental illness and how it has become so prevalent in our prison systems and jail systems around this country and how this all really harkens back to an older time when really that's what we did with, with people with mental illness back in the past was to put them in prison, put them in jail. And we had moved forward to a, a position where we, where we were getting them help, getting them medical treatment, um, institutionalizing them in their own situations where they weren't, they were separated from the general population of incarcerated individuals because the two things are not related. Mental illness and, and, uh, Perceived criminal, uh, criminality are, are not things that go hand in hand, but it turns out now in 2015, they actually are going hand in hand and we are getting rid of people by putting them in prison when they need to get professional help. We're going to also go back to a situation that we discussed, um, Previously, a little bit of an update on the uprising that's that's spiraling out from the Chicago black sites. And people not standing for this particular type of foolishness because it's it's out of control. So we'll uh, revisit that and and just kind of give you an update on what's going on in Chicago. Our last news story, though, is going to be taking a look at the prison industrial uh, complex. And I'll give you some specifics and some talking points and some, uh, links that you can study for yourself and get your, get your debate game tight, get your argument for modern day slavery in, intact and linear and be able to just go right through your points and stand up to any criticisms or any incredulity of people that just have never heard it. Cognitive dissonance. Don't want to hear what you've got to say. We've got some uh, facts and figures and name some companies and uh, give you basically an abolitionist uh, 
basic kit, just a basic little kit of what you need to know and what you need to be able to present to explain the 13th Amendment being used to continue modern day slavery and um, indentured servitude or whatever you want to call it. It's slavery. And in a lot of cases, like we talk about with California shipping inmates across the country to avoid compliance with Supreme Court order to decarcerate, it's even human trafficking. You got people from Vermont getting shipped all down south of their state as far as Kentucky. People from California going as far east as Mississippi. This is human trafficking also. Our uh, unexplainable black death profile is going to be a young man named James Harper, who, for all intents and purposes, was basically uh, swatted, as they call it, when someone calls the police on you, similar to John Crawford or similar to Tamir Rice, and the police come in guns blazing and you end up dead. We'll talk about James Harper and um, our abolitionist of the day is going to be indeed the free Alabama movement. If you can't tell by now, this movement has, uh, has always been of interest to me since I first saw brother Melvin Ray a while back in his contraband uh, video he was able to make on a cell phone or what have you, but just letting us know what was going on and then seeing what happened to him in the aftermath and getting reports of his abuse and torture for speaking out and trying to make things better for his brothers that are there with him and the people throughout the Alabama prison system. One of the most notoriously horrendous in terms of human rights in terms of medical care, in terms of abuses and rapes, in terms of open and apparent slavery. And all they're doing is standing up for their human rights. No one is saying we shouldn't, we shouldn't be serving time. No one is asking for release. No one is asking for any type of a break. And everyone is asking that they stop being made to do slave labor for pennies. That's all they're asking. So that will be our abolitionist of the day, the Free Alabama Movement. So again, we're uh, we're looking at a story to to kick off the program of a brother named George Williams. He was an inmate at Attica Prison, famous for the uh, 1971 riot. There, there's been movies about it and. Several rap groups have made send-ups through uh, through their lyrics discussing it. It affected the culture deeply at the time, and it still prevails to this day. The the idea, if you were to say to someone something about Attica, it's really hard for me to believe it's even still open. To be as old as it is and to be as storied and steeped in the history of abuses and murders as it is, for me, it's difficult to even believe that it's still there. But it is still here. And this is the situation. George Williams really wasn't involved in what these guards were led to believe was someone bucking up to them. There was a situation where the guards were doing their nightly bed checks and someone 
the the guard told him to shut up and someone replied back, why don't you shut the F up? So of course it becomes a man to man instantly and the guards go down to go snatch somebody out of their cell and teach them a lesson for talking back. But they apparently got the wrong person as George Williams wasn't even involved, but they snatched him out anyway. And three of them began kicking and beating and abusing him. And as he was being kicked and beaten, inmates claimed that they could hear him for two floors beneath him, up to two floors beneath him. They could hear him screaming and begging for his life. So what we see is the situation where these guards, like I said, he's a small man, relatively small man, about 5'8", about 170 pounds. And here's these individuals coming in, all of them over six foot and over 300 pounds, pretty much muscle with wood batons and tools, heavy steel toe boots and the whole night. So as they're abusing this man, as I said, they're finding out that everyone on the tier can hear what's going on. And they're pretty much don't care. They're willing to keep doing it and tell everybody to shut up and turn around and don't look. And it's none of your business because they run the prison. And this is how all of the prisons are run. It's all intimidation, all of the time. It's all abuses, all of the time. All of these people in there are animals to these guards. All of these people in there are guilty, and they're the worst of the worst. And they deserve whatever these guards feel like doing. And see, that's the other side of the argument when you're talking to people that don't want to hear about prison slavery that don't want to hear about abuses, that don't want to hear about health care being denied, that don't want to hear about our mentally ill being lumped up in the system as well, that don't want to hear about the racial disparity, that don't want to hear about how we prey on our youth. They just basically don't want to hear about anything. Don't tell me nothing about slavery. They just don't want to hear it. But these are the real people. These are the real situations. And as I said, 40 years ago, this same prison, Attica, had one of the, the biggest prison riots. Again, they call them riots when the people have finally had enough. They can't take any more being killed, being beaten, being raped. And they finally say enough. And that's one of the largest uprisings in the history of prisons in America is right here at Attica. And nearly 40 years later, they're still doing the exact same thing. So, like I said, when we talk about these actions of these people, we're also what we're lacking is the the criminal charges aspect. And it's similar to what's on the outside where police are not charged. Or if they are charged, grand juries don't indict. And if they do indict, they go to trial and 
it just all falls apart and somehow they're not able to see how an unarmed person minding their own business being charged and attacked and shot full of holes by an oath-taking taxpayer-paid law enforcement officer is just, it doesn't mean that it was criminal. And we see that same thing, of course, even worse inside the prisons. So, again, just from the story, at the time, uh, George Williams was 29 years old, African-American man from New Jersey, was serving a sentence of two to four years for robbing two two jewelry stores in Manhattan. He had been transferred to Attica that January after an altercation with inmates at a different facility. He only had four months to serve before he was going to be released. So during this time, he was particularly, you know, careful about keeping his nose clean. He already had plans in place for what he was going to do when he went home. He was a trained barber. He's trying to get his license reinstated and get back on his feet as uh, doing his trade. And when this all kicked off, after the the expletives were thrown back and forth from someone on his block at the uh, guards, and they just come down there, he said he was watching TV in his cell when they opened the opened his cell door and. Told him to strip. Time for a search. And they snatched him up. Drug him down the hallway. Took him into a room that's typically used for meetings. A day room. Closed the doors and told him that he had to give them an on-the-spot urine test. So... He says in the aftermath, his first thought was, okay, why would you need to bring a sergeant on the tier? Because the people, the guys that brought him down, one was a sergeant, Sean Warner. The other two were, uh, you know, I guess like entry-level officers, Keith Swack and Matthew Rademacher. And, I mean, the the photo, I'll put the photo up on the, on the page uh, later, but, I mean, these guys all look like, textbook white supremacist kkk neo-nazi type dudes every last one of them squinty eyes smug looks on their faces all of them got these thick goatees like they're fighting the civil war or whatever a couple of them got shaved heads and like i said they're all six foot plus all 300 pounds plus and this is what they got the job for is to be these big bruisers dead Beat on, I mean, I'm pretty sure everybody, but in this case, beat on knickers. And they mercilessly began to beat this man. Kick this man. Stomp him out. Beat him with wooden batons. One of the inmates that's there on his tier has his cell that's across from the day room. And he tried to quite casually observe the 67-year-old man. His name was Charles uh, Bissessi. And he said he saw him laying face face first on the floor and watched the guards kicking him in the face, hitting him with their batons. He said it by his estimates. They kicked him at least 50 times. He says he knows he saw at least a dozen blows with the nightsticks to his head. 
And like I said, for two floors below them, as far as two floors below them where they were, people were able to give testimony that they could hear the man screaming and crying and begging for his life. And as they beat him and kicked him, then they picked him up and they drug him and they're going to go throw him in solitary confinement because that's just what happens. Not that you have to be doing anything. Just throw you in solitary and they could leave you in there for a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple of months or a couple of years before anybody even raises an eyebrow. And that's what they were planning on doing with him. And this witness to what was going on says that he saw a guard drop a plastic safety razor on the ground, stomp on it, and then say the words, we got our weapon. And picked up the plastic pieces if, from where he has crushed it, picked up the plastic pieces and pulled out the small little razor that's inside of a plastic safety razor blade. So now they had their weapons. So now they had what they needed to write him up as having violently attacked them and justifying what they did to him. So they had him handcuffed and they're about to take him to solitary. And they say, they say to him, walk down or we're going to push you down. He responded to him, I can't walk. At this point, he realizes that his ankle is broken. I mean, they've been stomping on his legs three NFL linebacker-sized grown men on one small man just laying on the ground taking the abuse. His ankle was broken. He couldn't walk down the stairs. So they threw him down the stairs, as they promised they would. He crashes down to the bottom of the stairs, busts his head against the wall. Now his shoulder is broken. Now his eye socket is cracked open. In addition to the broken ribs, in addition to the broken ankle and broken leg, he didn't even realize his other leg was broken too. So they drag him up, this heap of bones and and blood, and take him to the special housing unit. Or did all hell no? You're not bringing that guy in here like that. No, he needs to go to infirmary that their brothers in blue or whatever they wear there, that their brothers in arms told them, no, we can't take responsibility for this. You've got to take this guy to the infirmary. He's way too beat up. He goes to the infirmary. He's too messed up for their infirmary. They plan on taking him to the hospital. Well, Attica is way out in the country in western New York State. And there's no major cities for like 50 miles. He goes to the local hospital. He's way too beat up for the local hospital. Put him in another ambulance, take him to the city, get him booked in emergency. And now we start to realize.
We're experiencing some uh, technical difficulties with Johannes line. Please uh, be patient as we work to get him back. This is Ron Hayes with Hood News, and you're listening to the Black Talk Radio Network. Stay tuned. and Elia, host of the Abolitionist Daily and co-host of New Abolitionist Radio. What I first loved about the Black Talk Radio Network was how the programming was giving a voice to my passion. I love that the broadcasts were able to teach me ways that I could help build a community that I want to be a part of. Now, just a few years later, and the Black Talk Radio Network features my voice, and I understand how valuable it is in changing lives. Malcolm X warned us to take the power of the media seriously. It was Malcolm who said the media is the most powerful entity on earth. They have the power to make the innocent guilty and to make the guilty innocent. He wasn't lying, and we know that it takes a strong and consistent media force to compete with the negative images and messages of misinformation which flow throughout the mainstream day and night. Well, the Black Talk Radio Network is that strong and consistent media force, offering a wide range of programming with topics from politics to faith, from health to pan-Africanism, black history, and the latest headlines are on Black Talk Radio News. 24 hours every day, seven days a week, live streaming and downloadable podcasts, all through a platform that is compatible with major outlets like TuneIn, iTunes, and stream seamlessly through mobile devices and even in your car. We do all we can to fulfill our end, researching, studying topics in depth so we can give informed commentary, inviting guests who are leaders in their professional and academic fields so we can hear from the experts. And when it comes to the grassroots, no one makes more connections and establishes relationships with the folks who are in the streets and at the meetings, the people who are actively protesting, agitating for a better world, and activating minds to join the struggle. In all of this, though, we need your help to make sure the message continues to go out all across this nation and across the world. The Black Talk Radio Network is listened to by tens of thousands of faithful listeners and adding new listeners every day. We need your help to continue the mission and grow the network. Come to the website, blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and click on the link to donate. Let's make sure we keep this new media going forward and as we go forward into this new millennium. Do whatever we do to survive. Drop it! Yeah! 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 And this is the Black Talk Radio Network. Apologies for uh, if I kind of faded out there before the break. I was about to go into more detail about uh, this incident with Mr. Williams being beaten. We're just getting to the point in the story where he is being taken to the infirmary first at Attica. And uh, they immediately told, first they were trying to take him to solitary confinement after they had beat him and broken all of his bones and nearly killed him. They tried to take him to solitary and a special housing unit boss told him, no, you got to take this man to the infirmary. He's just, he's too beat up to hide him in our spot. He's a hot potato right now. You can't, you know, just put him in our hands, take him to get some kind of care and then, you know, maybe bring him back later, I guess. Well, they tried to take him uh, to a hospital in Warsaw, which is the county seat of Wyoming County. 
where Attica's located. And as I said, it's just it's a small little rural area. It's hardly even incorporated other than the prison. Um, so his injuries were just too bad. So they packed him up again and then drove him to Erie County Medical Center in Buffalo, which is about 50 miles away. While he was in the ambulance, he actually asked the drivers, the ambulance driver and the attendant, would somebody please just let him use their cell phone or make a call for him to contact his family because he believed at that point that he was going to be murdered or he would die from this. And if he survived this, that going back to Attica, he was going to be killed. And good old exceptional Americans, American exceptionalism. Of course, they told him, hell no. Put a couple of band-aids on his bruises and dumped him on Erie County Medical Center and went on about their lives. But, man, this is this is one of those situations where this, this uh, story didn't have to end the way that it did. That man could have very, very easily died. So, again, we're we're appealing to people's humanity without regard to canned phrases and and parroted cable news, you know, uh, taglines and whatnot. We're, we're appealing to people's humanity. At this point, this man is not a threat to commit some kind of crime, obviously. At this point, this man is a human being, and you're a medical professional. You've supposedly taken oaths yourself and have a code of conduct. And most people, whether they claim to be people of faith or believe in any higher powers or if they are staunchly against such things, they still would say, I don't need God to be good. I'm a good person. So it doesn't matter. Either way, there's not very many people that are going to openly come out and say, look, I'm just not a good person. I'm an evil person. I don't care about other people. There's not many people that are going to openly admit that. Most people are going to tell you about how loving they are and either God taught them to love or they got a commitment as a Christian or they're a Buddhist or they're a Sikh or they're a whatever. So they know how to love and they take care of their fellow man and all of this type of talk. But you see, when it comes down to it, these incidents wouldn't be happening. There wouldn't be an abolitionist daily program if your fellow man wasn't subject to this type of behavior. It's not you, the listener. It's sure as hell not me. It's not Scotty Reed. It's not Max Parthas. It's not the new abolitionist. It's not free Alabama. It's not free Mississippi. It's not these people that see the problem and work to abolish the problem. So we've got to narrow it down a little bit and be able to at least make the connection to if you're not a part of the solution, it's got to be people that are a part of the problem, whether they know that they are or not, or whether they're actively seeking to be a part of it. And when you're not a part of the solution, then you're in cahoots, as the old folks used to say. You're in cahoots with Sean Warner and Keith Swack and Matthew Rodemacher. These big bad bullies that beat up handcuffed people and within an inch of their lives. When you don't believe what we're talking about and you don't, share the program and you don't study the links and you don't develop your own understanding 
of the situation and you don't develop your own informed opinion and you don't hold anyone around you accountable to care. You're never heard speaking about this. You're never seen doing any works on behalf of these people. You don't carry this concern with you to the altar on Sundays when you go to pray. You don't require that your pastor teach on this. You teach Bible study class yourself, a Sunday school class, and you don't make the connections between the stories in the Bible of prison and abuse and despair. And in the Bible, who was on their side? Seems to me when I've read it, it was God was on the side of those people that were locked up in there. So we got a lot of good Christians that don't know the Bible. Because even back then, it was a problem. And even back then, the people were in the belly of the beast begging for their lives, begging for justice. Wilting away for years and years. You ever heard of Joseph? Hell, they threw Daniel in a lion's den. Put Paul in there. I mean, it goes on and on. It's a history of if you're a person of faith, it's a history deeply connected to. And there's always been Sean Warners and Keith Swacks and Matthew Rodemachers doing their part to abuse and torture and beat the life out of people. And there's always been a need for advocates for justice. There's always been a need for abolitionists. There's always been a need for righteous people that wanted this type of thing to come to an end. And it even extends to, like we're saying, with these two people operating the ambulance, just carrying this guy to the hospital. He simply asked, will you call my family? Just, I'm about to die. Whatever, dude. See ya. Dropped him off. So he's in Buffalo now, and they take a tally of his injuries. Broken shoulder, several cracked ribs, two broken legs. One leg required surgery. Doctors had to realign it and then use a plate and six screws to reattach it. He also had a severe fracture of the orbit surrounding his left thigh. He had a large amount of blood lodged in his left maxillary sinus. And, of course, he had the typical cuts and bruises that go along with three men beating the hell out of you while you're handcuffed and face down on the ground. So one of the doctors asks one of the guards what happened to him, and the guard says, oh, he shouldn't And he walks away. And then he hears, Williams uh, recounts how he heard one of the guards tell medical staff that, oh, it's nothing. Nothing's going to come of this. And they went on about their, their day. Back at the prison, they started filling out their official reports. They fill out what they call an unusual incident memo, and they detailed how his alleged infraction included this razor blade. Oh, and then they also found a a pick-like, ice pick-like shaft that they say they also found on him. And then, like with the Darren Rainey, after his murder, they send in other inmates to clean up the scene. So there's no crime scene investigation because they don't consider it to be any crime. There's no need for forensics. There's no need for blood splatter 
experts. There's no need for for mapping out the scene to just explain what happens or justify what you know use of force was was enacted there. There's no need for any of that. Clean it up and we'll move on. It's no big deal. And that's what I want you to understand as I'm reporting this, as I'm telling you about this. I mean, that's really the issue is the entire culture is is built around. It's not a big deal for us to do this to people. And you'll hear the narrative on the other side stick so closely to how, oh, you want. I mean, people will jump in a heartbeat. I mean, a flick of an eye as fast as you say prison. And you're talking about even if you're on the low end and you're about reform. We say you can't reform slavery. We say you can't reform rape. We say you can't reform torture. We say you can't reform denying people medical care when a person has cancer. And you won't get you give them an for six months till they die. We say you can't reform that. You have to just stop that. You have to just abolish that. You have to make that your priority to end it. Not well, if we just give them Advil once a way once a day, then give them you know, aspirin the next time or something. This is what reform does. It tries to mete out compromise in the face of atrocities. But these people on the other side immediately jump to, well, you don't want to go to jail. Don't do crime. First thing. Next. So I guess you feel like all these rapists and murderers and pedophiles should just be walking free on the street. See, these are logical fallacies. You can't take the argument and turn it around to fit what you want to argue against and then begin to argue against what you presented. That's not what was said. This man was serving his time. So it's not a matter of saying no one should be in jail or we're not even talking about that. Yes, if he was truly guilty of robbing stores, I want him to spend some time separated from me in this society. I don't want to be robbed. I don't want my mother robbed. I don't want you robbed. So he needs some help. Yes, we need some social reform, and that's a whole different conversation, a different program. We need some changes in this country. But one of the things that's driving the joblessness is the fact that the jobs are going inside behind bars and become slave labor. So when you say this man shouldn't commit the crime, if you don't know his story, and let's say he had a job working at the factory there in his town for 15 years, and it – they found out they could. They didn't have to pay him $15 an hour. They didn't have to respect his union. They didn't have to respect his labor union. They didn't have to provide him health care. They didn't have to contrib- match his contributions to a 401k. They didn't have to give him sick time. They didn't need to have to give him vacation. Damn that. They could send his job up to Attica where they got 2,200 dudes right, waiting for work. And they could go from $15 an hour to paying them 23 cents an hour. And there's no other overhead. There's no, no health care. There's no, they don't, the company didn't have to pay any of that. That's on the taxpayer's dime. And that's what's happening across the country, whether you realize it or care about it, or if you haven't been victimized by it yet or whatever, that's what's happening. That's what these guys like George Williams are dealing with. That's what, Low-income, already low-income people, that's what people with, with uh, the statistics show that most people in prison uh, don't have their GED or the GED is as high as they were able to go. We talked about last week the California prison, 70% of inmates are former foster care. So we have the systems in place. We have the statistics reporting back to us correctly. 
and in glaring fashion, hands raised, screaming for attention, hey, look at this. This is a reason. This is a, a part of the problem. But people don't want to talk about those statistics and don't want to talk about the social change necessary, don't want to talk about how abolishing slavery is the way to end corporations taking advantage of prison labor and having to have some responsibility to the the society that they want to sell all their wares to to help those people have jobs where they can even buy those wares. So, yes, some of these burglary charges, some of these drug-addicted people, some of these people that are doing these low-level offenses, especially property crimes, they're trying to eat. They're trying to live indoors. I guarantee you this man was not living some kind of good life at all. You would not want to trade places with him even before he robbed the store. So that's the thing about it. When you hear people talk about racism and you hear people so incredulous about these conversations and even going into having this conversation, you have the person that comes right out off the bat and tells you, that they're not racist. This is just the cold hard facts. This is just the way it is in America. If you don't want to do the, the time, don't do the crime. They tell you racism is part of the past. They tell you you're being a racist because you're even bringing it up. You're playing the race card. You're a person of color. You're a black person. Black people are the most racist people. It don't even matter about skin color to me. They'll tell you that everybody has the same chances. It's just about how hard you work. They'll tell you about how their ancestors, they were immigrants to this country, or they were discriminated against. They, they were just like the blacks back in the day. They'll tell you how they never owned slaves, and to, to bring up slavery all the time, you're living in the past, and, and you're just talking about, they'll give you all these excuses, but what you'll never hear them talk about is, you'll never hear them say, well, you know what, my life would be easier if I was in this guy's shoes. Before he committed this crime, if, if, before that, if, if it was me, the day that he decided to go in and rob the first store, if I could have just been in his shoes, I could have made that work. I, I bet my life right now would be easier if I was him. You never hear him talk like that. You'll never hear him say, I wish I was born with all those privileges that blacks get, that live in the ghetto and live in project housing. I wish I'd, I I had those privileges they have. It would have been so much easier for me in life if I had been like this guy. You know, you won't hear that because they know that's not true. It's disingenuous to talk about these people's situations like this and blow them off like they're just crazy and malicious people out here that just have to be treated this way. And that's what the culture up there in Attica and in the neighborhood of surrounding it and all the people that go to work there in that rural area, all the unions, all the people involved, that's the culture. That's the mindset. So that's why I keep telling you, Pretty much on every program, we're fighting against the 13th Amendment. Yes, we're fighting to abolish that 13th. We're fighting to end. We could see that law repealed entirely because it makes slavery legal. 
can at least take out the exception. If they want to leave the 13th, just take that word except out. So that's the primary focus of the abolitionist movement. But we also realize when we have deeper conversations about what's going on, we also realize that we're in a fight against our neighbors. We're in a fight against our friends, the other people on the school board, on the PTA, on the city councils, and in the Bible study groups, and the wives of the people or whatever, the the wives of these people and, and their children who all live off of slavery and who all survive off of this type of brutality. That's how they get paid. Is This is the way they live. This is what they believe. This is what they do. So when we talk about ending these things, we're going to be clashing with people that do this type of thing. Because they want to continue to have nice homes. They want to continue to drive uh, nice trucks and their wives have nice little SUVs and their kids wear nice clothes and go to good schools. And it puffs their chest out to be able to go to church on Sunday and put a nice offering in the plate, pay their tithes and be responsible. They don't have to think about how am I going to make my car payment. They don't have to think about my tags are due and my insurance is, is expired and I, I'm living poor like these people that I'm going here and beating up. Because they're not living poor. They're living fine. And the fallout behind this situation up there in Attica is ridiculous. From a New York Times article that's, that's uh, reporting on this, it says to George Williams, the astonishing thing is that the charges of savagery and cover-up stemming from that hellish night have not been buried. He's shocked they didn't try to throw it out, just like I'm shocked, which is why it's a story on this program. But it's going to be recounted in front of a jury in the village of Warsaw, which is 14 miles away from the prison. And that's the thing, is that it's shocking to us. That's sad, that it's shocking to us. It's shocking to him that he damn near lost his life. But these people are going to face the jury, face, face justice over this thing. But once that came out that that was going to be the case, then you start seeing how the people in the city react and how the how the, the culture rose up to defend these guys. It says, unlike Rikers Island, which, of course, we've reported here and we'll continue to report on all the abuse. I, I think I told you there's 4,700 uh, instances of abuse. Or, or use of force, rather, 4,700 use of force reports put out. And, of course, that's not going to be every single use of force. I would venture to say that might be half of what was actually done. 4,700 use of force incidents in 2014 alone. Unlike Rikers, though, which is, you know, the, the city jail of New York City, Rikers being a state prison, and like we talk about with a lot of these states, like Wallace County, down there in the southernmost part tip of, of uh, Texas, but before you get to the Mexican border. South Carolina, Lee Correctional, out in the sticks. St. Clair, out in the sticks. And the same thing here. 
The most violent encounters between inmates and guards are handled internally. It says charges filed against the offender, the inmate, a hearing is held, and then the sentence is imposed. It's usually a long time put into solitary confinement. Inmates are invariably convicted. Of the 228 cases at Attica in which inmates were accused of assaulting corrections employees between 2010 and 2013, only one prisoner was found not guilty of all charges. Everyone else went straight to the box from anywhere from two months to up to 16 months, according to the records. And again, we know the records, they don't have to keep the records straight. Hell, they could have kept some of them people in there for years and just told you. It was, I mean, who's checking? So the Corrections Department Inspector General started to inquire. State police were called in. Investigators were checking out guards and inmates and medical personnel. They start moving people around to different prisons so they would be able to talk about it. I mean, they 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 wanted to get these guys if they did something, which obviously they did something. They they went far, you know, into it to make that happen because moving people around so they would feel safe to be able to discuss it is is a big deal. But all of this just prompted rebellion from the corrections officers. Like we see every time, these are like temper tantrum little children. How are you not in reality? that you and two of your coworkers beat the hell out of somebody, broke to several bones all from head to toe within an inch of their life, and somebody simply wants to check into that and see if you maybe didn't have to do that. And you get all kinds of pissed off and start retaliating. Who retaliates? It's like the situation we told you about with the ACLU settlement. In Arizona, when they're first thing we say is we didn't do anything wrong. The state says we didn't do anything wrong, even though we got all these deaths in custody and even though we got all this rampant abuse. And you found us. You found it. Yep, you you caught us. We didn't do anything wrong. And uh, next thing, we're going to go ask uh, the legislators for more money so we can do our job better. The mentality of these people, and this is what you're abiding by when you don't rise up, like the new abolitionist radio theme music. Rise up when you don't get up and start requiring, start holding these people accountable, these elected officials and these people that are down the ballot that you're voting for, not just at the top. And it says Obama or it just says Democrat all and you just click it. The prosecutors and the judges and the controllers of legislation in your area all down the ticket. These are the people that you just don't even hold accountable. And they let this go on on your watch. And it erodes at the quality of life in our larger society. We allow this to go on. Why do you think rape is so prevalent in the larger society? Because rape is so prevalent in the incarcerated society. Why do you think abuse is so prevalent in the larger society? Because abuse is so prevalent in the incarcerated society. So this is what you allow to continue, and these guys, they went off when they found out that they were going to be getting investigated. They did just like NYPD. They pulled a work stoppage, straight-up work slowdown. And he says such actions are not uncommon. Officials acknowledge 
with the only victims being the inmates whose meals and programs and visitors, everything all gets delayed. That's all that happens. If you want to say something, you want to be mad at us for kicking your ass, well, guess what? You won't eat. It'll be a little late today if it comes at all. Guess what? You had visiting day? Hmm. You won't be seeing mom this week. Sorry. That's their response to beating people. It's further psychological uh, torture. And this went on for weeks until the supervisors finally had to do something. Then they start pulling these lockdowns and shaking up people's cells because, see, they always justify their violence by finding weapons and saying these people are dangerous to guard. So all they got to do is go shake down a whole block of cells and break out the same old shanks they said they found last time. Who's checking? Who cares? Just justified is the is the is the mold. But they kept on investigating. And the state grand jury handed up criminal indictments against the Attica guards. Originally four of them were charged. And they were all charged with first degree gang assault, which is something that's usually used against the Crips or the Bloods or Latin Kings. And that's a one to three uh, or eight, eight to 25 year maximum sentence. And then they also gave them felony counts of filing false reports and tampering with evidence. It's the first time state officials said the criminal charges have been brought against correction officers for a non-sexual assault on an inmate. The first time. New York State has had prison since the early 1800s, right? I'll let you think about that over the break. You're listening to the Abolitionist Daily. This is Johanna Nalaya on the Black Talk Radio Network. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For live programming schedules, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. I got so much trouble on my mind. Refuse to lose. Here's your ticket. Here the drama get wicked. And we are back. This is the Abolitionist Daily. And I am Johan and Elia talking to you from the Black Talk Radio Network. I want to give out the number again, even though I've been talking at length about this. This is just an amazing case to me, and I want you to understand what's going on with it, how this came about, their response, how it became a criminal case. And I want you to imagine it as a thing that's possible. Imagine it as something that should be much more prevalent across the country because this is the same thing that's happening in prisons all over America. So just like we talked about Wallace County last week, and I really wanted to go in depth into that so you can understand the history and understand the culture and understand what's really behind what the news is telling you is a riot and why people are rising up against what's happening to them. And we discussed, is this the way it's going to be? Because when you and I 
well, not you and I, because you and I are here together and you are active. You are an abolitionist. You are involved in creating the change that you know we need to see. But for those that don't care and that haven't been reached by the message yet, and when they've heard the message, they denied it and they turned their back and they turned a deaf ear to it. For those people, this is the only way that the people on the inside and that are being affected by it and being victimized by it, and it's a lifestyle for them in and out of the prisons and in and out of abuses. and in I mean, this is their life. They're like rag dolls in the hands of this system. For these people, these type of work stoppages, these types of revolts, these types of uprisings or what have you, this is really all they have. So when we see criminal charges coming and when we see investigators get involved and when we see the state agencies doing their jobs, then we need to talk about that. We need to encourage you that it can happen. We need to inform you on what happened and how it happened. We need to inform you so that you know we're looking for that to happen in Florida with the Florida Department of Corrections and all of the deaths that have occurred. We saw something happen in Arizona with the ACLU lawsuit. It wasn't as strong as we want it to be. But we've seen, you know, Southern Poverty Law Center. We've seen them go in and, and uh, create lawsuits. We've seen ACLU go in and create lawsuits. We're seeing these things occur. But what we really need is criminal charges. Sure, settlements are, are you know, good for news sound bites or whatever, news items, headlines. They're good politically for those organizations. But for actual change to come about, to the change of the culture to come about, the change of the mindset of the guards, of the new guards that they're going to hire next year, for the change of the mindset of that old guard that's been there 25 years, and this is how they've always done it, but now he's seeing guys doing doing time. And he starts to think about, well, you know, I mean, that's how we used to do it. But this, I mean, this is what happened with slavery back in the day. This is what happened with the KKK raids and terrorism, open terrorism of black folks and open lynchings and pick a nigger days and, and family uh, trips to the, watch the lynching and hanging black folks from trees and cutting off their genitals and setting them on fire and giving out souvenirs of their body parts and all of that, it became something that, that our law enforcement finally had to treat as criminal, and suddenly it started to go away. And the same thing is true inside these prisons. When it becomes criminal, it will start to dissipate. And like I said before the break, um, the guards went, you know, went apeshit. They couldn't take it. They They couldn't believe they were being... Because, like I told you, it was the first time in the state history that charges were brought against corrections officers for a non-sexual assault on an inmate. So they took that as an attack. They started having fundraisers, Darren Wilson style, George Zimmerman style, even though he's not in law enforcement. But they start raising money for these people. So look at these, look at these patterns. This is not going to just go away magically. These are your neighbors. We saw the teachers that were wearing the We Support Darren Wilson t-shirts to, to work all over social media. We saw the officers around the country wearing the We I Am Darren Wilson armbands. And these guys are the same way. I mean, damn. 
that's what you want to rally behind? Is brutal beatings and torture of people? The blue wall of correction solidarity. They came out with the Attica United slogan. They made a Facebook page. Prison guards and families of, of prison guards and whatnot started all over the country sending in money. Inside the prison, anything that inmates had put up as murals or artwork in their in their cells or on the walls of the prison was all painted black. And they put a big blue stripe across on the wall on everything. This is their response to what they did to this man. And because they got their, got in trouble behind it. So this is what they did. The unions come out. Remember Pat Lynch going off about coming after Panatello for choking out Eric Garner? They got their union leaders too. They come out and tell all the news that'll listen and go on interviews and tell everybody that it wasn't intentional and they used the amount of force that they had to use and all of this stuff. So, so I'm showing you all of this to show you that this is prevalent. This is the way that it's done in every case. You criminalize the victim. You, you disparage the name of the person that was the victim. You turn around and show solidarity in your ranks and you show the victim side that you've got so many supporters and you raise money and make it public. You go on the offensive, you start giving interviews, you start taking control, you start controlling the narrative, you start controlling the culture, where the people are even at. On the outside where the shootings occur, you start hyper-patrolling those areas. Cops showing up everywhere. Here you put out a couple of videos of helping old ladies across the street and giving high fives to little kids right down the street from where you just blew a little kid away a week ago. You control this whole thing. So that's why we're here. The Abolitionist Daily is here to help you control, help you understand with us controlling the propaganda, telling you what really happened and showing you the the real BS that maybe you've been falling for. Maybe you didn't notice it. It's just subtle and it's just normal. It's just a part of what we do. I'd never thought about it being what you Wow, I hadn't thought about that. That's what I'm here for. That's why I'm going on and on about this story. That's why I'm talking about this, and I talk about everything at length and in depth. Because a lot of these ties to your mind and to your soul, your spirit person, your 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 real you, you don't realize maybe what effect the media has on you. You don't realize possibly how prevalent all of this is and how systematic it is and how it just goes on so unnoticed and it just contributes to your inactivity. It just contributes to your indifference. It's an environment where you see these same steps taken no matter what. If it's LAPD, if it's NYPD, if it's in Rikers, if it's in Florida Department of Corrections, if it's in Attica, if it's in Wallace County, if it's in Lee Correctional, if it's in Tutwiler Prison for the Women, Tacoma, Everywhere it happens, it's the same thing happens. But in this situation, somehow, some way, we got state investigators to come in, put together a case, and charge these bastards. So I want you to know it is possible. These people are living in fear for their lives, as some of the newly exonerated testify to. 
Antonio Yarborough was there for 20 years, convicted of murders which he never committed. So he's one of our riders of the Underground Railroad. He's one of our exoneree profiles that we talk about on the New Abolitionist Radio Program. He's one of the people helped by individuals like uh, former DA in, in Dallas, Craig Watkins, by current DA Ken Thompson in Brooklyn. He's one of the people helped by Innocence Project and operations like that. Spent 20 years in there. Now at 6'3", 250, he wasn't quite like Mr. Williams. He could handle himself, but even he said once he got out, of course you're afraid. You're afraid for your life. You're scared to go out. You're scared to go out on the yard. You're scared to go get your food. You're scared to just come out of your cell, period, because you don't know when they're going to attack you. And our sister, Sophia Elijah, sister we profiled as one of our, our abolitionists of the day last week with the Correctional Association of New York. Like I told you about, they do the work to go into the prisons and check on the conditions and try to help. And she was on a tour of, of Attica like a month before this even happened. In her report at the time when she came back, she said, it struck me that when I walked the tiers of Attica, every single prison, bar none, they all talked about how the guards were brutalizing them. And she talked about there's atrocities, of course, at Clinton Prison and at Auburn Auburn is the prison where they originated the the uh, ice bucket challenge. And I'll put the graphic up that, that we created just showing you the, the connection of putting a man in the strapping him to a chair and dumping the water over his head is a form of torture. And then we connected that to the Darren Rainey situation in Florida. So that's Auburn prison up there in New York. And in her opinion, it's beyond repair. She's a professional. She's Harvard-educated, been around the world. I mean, the executive director of one of the oldest prison reform organizations in America, Correctional Association of New York. So she's telling you that it's not going to be able to be fixed from what they're seeing. And that's why we need the criminal charges to be pressed against these people. So summing this up, they're going to be going to trial here very soon. And we will, of course, be keeping you updated on the progress of that. It's just a lot of information to this story. I mean, these guys are just so cold and don't care, and they really don't feel like they've done anything wrong. And I, I just hope that you can see a problem with that. I hope that you can can understand that that's not the America that we want to be a part of. That's that's not the society that we want to support and and let uh, run I'm on autopilot. It's just not. That's not where that's not how we want to live. So I'm hoping that you see that. So I will post a link to this story. And like I said, there's quite a bit more of information about the actual story, but just knowing that they will be going to trial here uh in the in the coming weeks. So I will keep you updated on that. And um, we'll just continue to follow up. But just just really sad and amazing report uh, coming out of coming out of Attica. But we'll see if our court system gets it right or not. Um, moving on, though. I wanted to uh, give you some talking points specific to the slave labor slavery claim that the abolitionist movement is so bold to be making. 
telling you that this is modern day slavery and human trafficking in addition to the conversation about the human rights and whatnot. So I just wanted to give you some some names and some numbers, some facts and some figures. So if you've got pen and paper, you know, feel free to take some of this stuff down. Uh, the links will be on the Abolitionist Daily Facebook page. Um, again, the um, the program, the Abolitionist Daily, as well as New Abolitionist Radio, our email address is newabolitionistsradio at gmail.com. So if you've got an inquiry, you want more information, uh, something you heard on the program you want us to send out, you know, or want me to send to you or what have you, anything like that, if you're not a social media person, then by all means, send me an email at newabolitionistsradio at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to uh, send out whatever I can find because I need you in this fight. I need you informed and in the fight. So uh, just to give you some numbers, um, we already know the prison industrial complex is definitely one of the fastest growing industries in the United States. Uh, we've already made a connection for you that uh, between the private prisons and Wall Street, and then we've discussed with you about the legislation in place in 37 states currently to uh, make taking advantage of slave labor by corporations very attractive. Um, we've talked about the uh, 80, 90, and 100 percent capacity contracts that private prisons have with the states. So regardless of crime, which crime has been on the down spiral for the last 20 plus years, every statistic shows that even Bill O'Reilly, when he goes on his rants about black culture, he has to admit when confronted with that, or sometimes he presents it himself, that crime is steadily going down in the country. The most staunch oppositionist of any talk about prison slavery, any talk about prison reform, any talk about the, the atrocities that are going on and how we need to stop this still has to admit that crime is going down. So I don't know how people are putting together that crime goes down, but the ranks, their uh, prison roles are continuing to swell. But anyway, um, just understand that this system uses direct advertising campaigns. So imagine that prisons using direct advertising, they reach out to the states to solicit contracts. They're going to get the business. It's not passive. They're reaching out. That's how some of these contracts come to pass is they send out uh, information to every state and ask them for the business. Can we be invited to the next round of bidding? Can you look at our proposal? Can you consider using private prisons as an option? They've got their own trade exhibitions. They have conventions. We've got all these uh, flashy, fancy websites and mail order and internet catalogs. These are all con uh, contractors of the industry. They work with their own choice. houses on Wall Street. We talked to you about we, that's one of the things that's showing you the uh, GEO Group and the CCA earnings calls. When you see those people that are announced as the analysts, those are Wall Street firms. SunTrust, I could think of right off the top of my head. And they've got representatives that go specifically to those meetings and, and put together the prospectus and put together the earnings reports for their investors for the next quarter and, and you know, predicting the future of where the money's going to go. These are real Wall Street firms investing in slavery. You've got plumbing supply companies, food supply companies. We talked about the Keefe Group, a part of the corruption in Mississippi with Cecil. McCrory and, and Christopher Epps, 
We talked about Aramark. You know about the healthcare uh, companies that did go uh, Wexford and Corizon. We just told you last week about the young man that was supposed to be under Corizon's healthcare with the heart condition, begging his parents for weeks over the phones and in their visits, begging. He's recorded for posterity, begging for his life until he finally died of the heart condition he came there with and never got any help. He's got armed security firms. He's got people that even make padded sales. I mean, that's just the, their product, and they, they market that to the prisons. And these are all multi-million, and in some cases, multi-billion dollar companies. And it's all based off of the incentive that's in the 13th Amendment that you can make people slaves if you can just convict them of some kind of a crime. And everybody wants to end on slavery so they can make this big money performing tasks, whether it's service with call centers, whether it's service with various DMV departments around the country. Yeah, your DMV. You notice the staff is not as, as thick as it used to be. It was a time when I first started driving 20-some years ago, the DMV, you know, there'd be 50 lines. And the place is packed full of people or whatever, and you, and you, you know, could go to any one of these booths or whatever. Now you go in the DMV, hell, I was just there uh, last month getting my stuff renewed, and there's like six lines. It's still a pretty good-sized line of people, but if there's something that can be handled in a customer service capacity, they give you the number or the website or whatever and say, you you know, you don't have to be here at the live place. You can handle that online, or you can just give a call. Well, guess who's handling that? Inmates. Contracted through your state to work for the Department of Motor Vehicles to handle customer service. AT&T, Verizon, Walmart has a has a part of their operation is the returns that come back. Online orders and returns that come back. They have people that assemble and disassemble products for Walmart so they can put them back on the shelf and, and remove the tags and, re, and re-sticker the products or whatever. They do that for Walmart. Those are inmates. Walmart was my first job as a teenage kid. That was something we definitely did. I was a stockman was my first job at Walmart. And that's something we did. Take the returns, carts full of returns, take them back there, figure out if we can put it back in the box, tape it up, make it look good, put the stickers, put it back on the Well, you know what? That's not that's not now even your kid can't get a job like that no more. That was my first job. It's gone now. It's it's for people that are incarcerated. It's for slaves now. Are you Seeing the connection, is this amazing to you that this is the America you live in, or is this cool? Maybe I'm just crazy. I'm I'm just a dude that just, I like to rant, and I'm crazy, and I just, I complain too much because, you know, when I was, what, 15, 16, I wanted a job. I was trying to buy my first vehicle. I wanted to be able to take girls out on dates, and I wanted new shoes and clothes and stereos and I went down to Walmart. My dad told me we're going to lunch today. Wow, my dad's taking me to lunch? Okay, great. We went to McDonald's, and he ordered his and asked me what I wanted. I'll take whatever. You know, I got my little order. And then he asked the lady when she pushed our tray across, "Um, can I have an application? And it seemed a little strange to me. My dad asked for an application. He had a great job. He'd been there for 30 years at that time probably or whatever. Wow, why was dad getting an application? That's crazy. And then we went to sit at our table, and he pushed it across the table, and he pulled this out because you're getting a job one way or another. It's hard 
Okay. Well, here's my idea, Dad. Can we go across the street to Walmart? Because I don't want to fit burgers just yet. I, I want to try some options. I want to see if I can get on somewhere else. He took me to Walmart. I begged the lady, filled out the application, handed it to her, and begged her, please call me. I will call you later on today, and I'll be calling you every day. Hopefully, you'll give me a chance because my dad just took me to McDonald's and promised me I was going to be flipping burgers, and I don't want to do that. And she laughed or whatever and remembered me, and I got the job. But that job don't exist now unless you've been incarcerated. We got it from the left business observer. It says the federal prison industry produces 100% of all military helmets, ammunition belts, bulletproof vests, ID tags, shirts, pants, tents, bags, and canteens, along with war supplies. Prison workers also buy 98% of the entire market for equipment equipment assembly services, 93% of paints and paint brushes, 92% of stove assembly. I think it was um Indianapolis or I have to remember where they or Gary, Indiana, I think, um where they were talking about one of the like Whirlpool or one of the major uh companies that had it had basically serviced that, you know, that uh town, that city for you know, generations, that was the job, was to go work at Whirlpool or whatever. And, and there's, a, you know, a guy there. Well, that's gone. And guess where it went? Into prisons. See, this is factual. This is not just, I just hate prison and I just want to make everything about slavery. This is facts. When people take away your $50,000 a year job, your full benefits, your vacation, your retirement, your sick leave, your ability to give your kids a college fund. When people take that away from you and send it inside behind cell walls and contract directly with the state or contract directly with George Zoli at GEO or Damon Heinegger at CCA or whoever's running MTC, or any of the other dozens of smaller companies that are operating private prisons, and they take a thousand people that's from around your state that are trapped on that plantation, and they give them your fifty thousand dollar a year job and all your benefits. Oh wait, not your benefits and not your fifty thousand. They give them twenty three cents an hour and demand forced labor out of them. And if they don't do it, they put them in solitary confinement. So now these people are being even further victimized by the system if they don't want to do the slave labor, if they refuse. This guy could be on the inside looking out for you. Maybe somebody locked up in there. You think anybody locked up in there? Their parents work for for the defense industry. Any of the people that are locked up work for the, the, uh, the stove assembly company that went inside the prison, the body armor company, the home appliance companies. They make 46% of body armor. They make 36% of all home appliances. They make 30% of headphones and microphones and speakers. Hell, the microphones and speakers I'm talking to you through right now could have been assembled with prison labor. That's how prevalent it is. That's how deep we need to go to look and find out and figure out what's going on. This is what we have the ability to do to boycott, to change things. They're on the inside and they can refuse to work which I'm going to tell you after the break, an update about the uh, the work stoppage, the latest one that we know of at St. Clair, in solidarity with the several others that have gone on around the country in the last months. 
and over the last several years and have always been going on since slavery was a part of incarceration. I'll even go as far back as give you some info from a report talking about Alabama's history in prison slavery. Since we're talking about free Alabama, this goes back to the 1800s. Back then they were making saddles. You think I'm kidding, but I'm very, very serious. Back in the day, 1852, when they would have 200 or 500 prisoners, they were making saddles and horse tack and things that they needed for, for horse gear or what have you, because that's what people needed at the time. And then the Civil War gears up, and they started directly supplying like the Department of Defense and all of our foreign wars, and these people are making, I just told you, the list of stuff that they're making. Bulletproof vests, ammunition belts, military helmets, ID tags, dog tags, shirts, pants, tents, bags, canteens, all sorts of war supplies. Well, guess what? Back in 1852, back in 1858, back in 1862, the origins of the convict lease system after the Emancipation Proclamation, all in Alabama, they were making the same things for the war effort back then. Making supplies for the for the soldiers, making supplies for the horses, contracting with the whatever the Department of Defense was at that time, contracting out with the with the Confederate armies and whatnot to make supplies even back then, when slavery still was in place. So that's your connection. That's what you need to know. That's what you need to see. That's how it makes sense. And I'll give you the link so you can see for yourself. I'm not joking or lying. I mean, these are the state prisons in Alabama. They named the names. I mean, the people were proud of what they were doing, the governors at the time and the business owners at the time and people that won these contracts and people that leased out the properties and built the actual structures and then became the first wardens and making profits off the demand for war goods, sending some of the prisoners out to be in the Confederate Armed Forces. So this is America, man. This is where we've been. To me, if you're in denial about this existing now, you don't know what you come from. It's so simple for me to see because I know slavery is how this country was built and how the economy was maintained. So it's not hard for me to see that it's what's going on right now. You're listening to the Abolitionist Daily. This is Johan and Elia on the Black Talk Radio Network. We're going to take a break and we will be right back. This is Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. Not cowboy justice for Rodney Reed by Kevin Cooper. Mr. Rodney Reed 
who is an innocent African-American man on death row in the state of Texas, is in the fight of his life for his life. He and his family are doing something within a state that has proven historical record of the fact that it cannot, and for the most part, has never been fair to him in his judicial system. Since its founding, the state of Texas has shown that it cannot on its own be fair to all its citizens, especially its poor and minority citizens. It now must be forced to do so in a tortured case of Rodney Reed. Texas loves to hand out cowboy justice, which in fact is no justice at all. We want and demand that this cowboy mentality be set aside so that Mr. Rodney Reed and his family can once and for all receive real justice within this case because it's screaming out for real justice. How can the state of Texas honestly claim to be correct in the case of Mr. Rodney Reed when there's so much evidence that Nona only undercuts and undermines all the state has said and is saying, but also helps to prove all what Mr. Rodney Reed and his family, attorneys, and supporters are saying? How can the state of Texas claim to be so right in any case, especially this one, when history has proven the fact that they have been wrong in so many other cases in the past and have, in fact, executed innocent people. Many of those cases had less evidence supporting those people than Mr. Ron Reed has within this case. America as a whole and Texas especially manage inhumanity very well, just as long as it's kept isolated to the poor minorities and kept away from its middle and upper classes within its state and within this country. This is why, besides its arrogance, that the state of Texas feels so comfortable denying Mr. Rodney Reed not only his constitutional rights, but also his day in court, as well as his universal right to life. All Mr. Rodney Reed is asking for is what those so-called founding fathers said we citizens of this country are entitled to have, which is this, a fair trial and a trial free from governmental interference, none of which Mr. Rodney Reed has ever had in this case. Texas. It is way past time for Texas to do the right thing in the case of Mr. Reed. We are here to say to them and to all that need to be told that despite the historical and ongoing mindset of certain people in power, the lives of black people do have value within this world, country, and state of Texas, especially that of Mr. Rodney Reed. In struggle and solidarity from death row or San Quentin prison, I'm Kevin Cooper. These commentaries are recorded by Noel. The Abolitionist Daily. This is Johan and Elia, and this is the Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, before the break, we were discussing the direct connections between modern day slavery and modern day prison contracting, modern day job stealing from the public sector, the modern day decimation of the former middle class, the modern day inst- institutional efforts of our U.S. government and of these corporations to undermine you and me 
So we were just giving you the percentages of how much of these commonly consumed material goods are actually made by slaves working for slave labor, being forced to do these things with threat of violence against them. That is slavery. You might not like it. It might really sound crazy that it's happening, but that don't mean it ain't happening. So uh, before the break, uh, Brother Scotty Reed uh, told me he had a question he wanted to ask. Scotty, are you there with us? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, I just want people to really appreciate the time and the research that you put into. I'm not even going to say just this program or, you know, for new abolitionist radio, but as an abolitionist, the research that you do. Because this is the first time I'm hearing that a convict leasing program existed, you know, before um, the Civil War. I, I did not know that. I mean, it wasn't called convict leasing, which officially didn't spring up until, what, 10 years after the right. uh, 13th Amendment. But even before the Civil War, it appears that they were using prison slave labor based on the information that you just gave. So I'm like, wow, I didn't even know that. So I just wanted to to um to, you know, ask you that again. Are you telling us that? They were practicing prison slave labor and making products, making products to go on the commercial market or whatever. Um, and this was before the Civil War. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. According right. to, and I'll post this, um, uh, I'll post the link on the uh, page. This is according to a report that I found that is titled The Convict Lease System in Alabama. And it goes into depth. Several pages, it goes into depth uh, discussing Alabama's convict lease system uh, from 1866 to 1927, as it was called that at that point. But it goes back as far as uh, Alabama uh, setting up its first prisons. It names the names of the people that built them. It names the names of the people that owned the land and therefore became the first wardens. I mean, it's a fascinating report just talking about the culture, how it was built. And like I said, it's it's telling you flatly that these people were taking advantage <laughs> during the 1840s and 50s to manufacture goods to make money. I mean, it just makes the 13th Amendment make so much more sense now because yeah. Alabama already had the blueprint, you yeah. know. And, and and so, like, you know, um, the book, what is it, Slavery by Another Name, focuses on the convict leasing system that sprang mm -hmm. up after the Civil War after the passage of the 13th Amendment, but it just seems like, you know, that Alabama was a forerunner to all of this. They laid down the blueprint of how to practice slavery through prisons. Thanks for that. Thanks for that information and research. No doubt, no doubt. And again, this is, um, you know, I mean, I appreciate the, the compliments, Scotty, you know, for the, the research and whatnot, but I mean, this is just how I'm wired. I just want to know. I talk to people. I get into conversations with people. I introduce, I introduce slavery to conversations. I was just in a conversation the other day about the America's tax problem and the, the, the wealthy. Uh, the guy started off the, the conversation talking about Red Fox and having worked in anonymity for so many years of his career before he actually made it big and became wealthy. And then once he got money, then the IRS came after him going back as far as when he, you know, was barely eating or whatever. He hadn't filed taxes for a lot of years or whatever. So it all became a big 
problem at, toward the end of his life, and it forced him to work. And so it was a whole conversation about that, and he he tied that into saying, you know, the liberal versus conservative, and and you know how we tax the rich, and just all this kind of stuff or whatever. And I just added it because it was on my mind. A lady was discussing about uh, corporate tax and the small business owners and talking about these various things or whatever. And at some point in the conversation, it clicked to me like you all are talking about these things and talking about wealth and people's right to build wealth and people that are wealthy being, you know, they shouldn't be. And I don't owe anybody anything in this kind of attitude. And it just came across to me like, look, the wealth for the most part that was built in the beginnings of this nation was built off of slavery and, and uh, misappropriation of land. So I don't want to hear a story about how the the wealthy families or whatever, they paid their dues and they work and they create jobs. I don't want to hear that because you stole. You stole resources and you still got a company in place now that's still stealing those resources. They're still sitting on stolen land that built its facilities. And a lot of these places, you go to these plants and go to these manufacturing places and go to these you know, the original places they broke ground back in the 1800s. And it's the same place that slaves built the building. How dare you come across to me like you're so righteous and you you just believe in the right and the people and the – you love slavery. And if I dig into these things and look a little bit more and I, and I want to shore up my argument and be sure that I know what I'm talking about, you find stuff like this, it's out there. It's readily available. In-depth reporting. There are so many scholars and academics and professors and, and people that are, this is what they do, researchers, and they just want somebody to read this information. They're screaming. They're begging for people to care about this kind of information because this is the identity of our nation. This is who we are. We're not the freaking people on the Bud Light commercial. That is not America. Screaming fans at the Cowboys game and the we're not the, the, the people that we portray ourselves as in the media, in advertising. It's just not who we are. We are a nation built on slavery. And these kind of reports go into depth telling you what was really going on. When I read that, it tripped me out, too. But I'm like, damn, they were selling saddles. Spurs and I mean, you know, whatever kind of horse gear you needed to, to because that's what people had at those times. And that's what convicts made. So I'll put the I'll put it up there on the abolitionist daily page. And again, the, the email is a uh, new abolitionists radio at gmail dot com. If you want, you know, information that you're not on social media. I've had several calls and been contacted from folks that are listeners to the program and definitely want to support your listenership and definitely want to, you know, offer whatever services I can to keep you informed and, and in the know so you'll be able to make a case for slavery yourself and have all you need to uh to, to break this stuff out. So I'll close this out and then we'll move quickly to the uh to the to the mental health situation. And since Free Alabama is going to be the abolitionist of the day, then I think we'll be able to merge those two things, maybe kind of as one and uh, and wrap it up. But um, this is a, from another report that's talking about prison labor and saying why it's way more than license plates. It says, whenever I think of prison labor, first thing I think in my head is license plates. Turns out prison labor has come a long way from its humble roots of license plates and linens. And, of course, we just told you that even that's a myth. <laughs> So here you have someone that's in the know and makes a report and puts this out and it goes on a website and this is somebody that is an authority, so to speak, in these things. And we just told you about a report that supersedes that from the 1850s 
that it wasn't about license plates, but it was about transportation. It was about making horse saddles and the reins and the bits and all this type of stuff. Amazing. Um, so we already talked about the 100% of helmets and ID bag, ID tags and all that stuff. Um, Unicor is why I wanted to mention this. Unicor is the federal. So see, a lot of those are private prison, you know, the GO and the, uh, CCA contracts, MTC contracts, or what have you, that they don't even have to mention. Mind you, they don't have to talk about that in the earnings calls with the shareholders. They talk about the contracts that they get with the government and with the states. They talk about their aftercare. They talk about the B, uh, owning BI and, and doing the uh, probation, the ankle bracelets. They talk about the services that they offer. That's what they talk about to the shareholders. So where do they put that money that they get when they sign contracts where they get to make you know, the the with the, the DOD, where they get to make the helmets or whatever. Where do they put the money that they sign contracts for making the appliances and making all these goods and stuff that I just told you about before? Where does that money go? But anyway, Unicor is the federal prison industry uh, for profit from day one. Unicor is the 39th largest U.S. contractor. They operate 110 factories. It's 79 federal penitentiaries, and the Department of Defense is one of their largest contracts. All the way back as far as 2001, Unicor sales were over $580 million. About $400 million of that was to the Department of Defense, so about 66% of all their business. So when you see your politicians raising the defense budget and voting to raise the defense budget, who are they enriching and who's doing the work for them for slave labor with no overhead, with no union protections, with no oversight of in, of uh, employee care whatsoever, no programs, no nothing in place, straight up inmates. So, again, that information will be available on the Abolitionist Daily page, and um, you can look into these things for yourself. But I really hope that you got some stuff there out of that segment to to give you, you know, some some good combinations, some good lefts and rights, and good stiff jab. You know, you want to be able to rely on your jab. Stiff jab right in the mouth when you hear one of these freaking dunderheads talking this whatever they talk. Just pop them right in the chops. Well, I mean, the federal government sure is enjoying slavery because uh, we spend about $600 million a year for at least the last 14 years with a federal employment program where it's all inmates at 79 different penitentiaries across the country making 100% of our military gear, even the bombs. So if it ain't slavery, I don't know what it is, because I sure would like to have one of them uh, DOD jobs uh, assembling hardware for the largest military nonstop campaigning. I mean, hell, that'd be a hell of a job. That would be one hell of a job. I could start working that job at age 18 and stay there for 30 years and retire a young man, having made a great salary, saved up a lot of money, have a beautiful 401k, start my own business, you know, after I retire. 
from having a good, honest job. That's the American dream, but that's why it's a damn dream, because that ain't real. You can't do that now, because they found a better way. They found a better you. He's in prison. You want a job, go there. So we're going to move on to the mentally ill, and I'll just uh, give you a summary of another report that I was uh, studying through over the weekend. And it, uh, it it went in concert with some information I wanted to share a week or so ago about what's going on in our in our prisons with the mentally ill. And I have been looking for um, information that was that was uh, supporting what I had read just briefly that was saying that there's more mentally ill persons in jails and prisons than in hospitals. We'll find that specific. Uh, line again, so I didn't want to be quoting that or what have you, but then I found this report, so you know I'm going to be using that as a part of the fight also because that just makes no damn sense. Um, this is from uh, treatmentadvocacycenter.org. Uh, this is one of their PDFs um, discussing jails versus hospital. It says the executive summary of this uh, report is that um, using 2004 through 2005 data, which was not previously published, uh, we found that in the United States, there are now more than three times more seriously mentally ill persons in jails and prisons than in hospitals. So, I mean, that right there seems like that's a problem to me. Uh, looked at by individual states, in North Dakota, there are approximately an equal number of mentally ill persons in jails and prisons. That's just one state where they're equal. Uh, in jails and uh, prisons compared to hospitals. But by contrast, states like Arizona and Nevada have almost 10 times more mentally ill persons in jails and prisons than in hospitals. It is thus a fact and not hyperbole that America's jails and prisons have become our new mental hospitals. Write that down. Make a, make a whatever, a meme out of it if you want to. Do whatever you need to do. Just make that one of your jabs. See, that's just my style. I get accused of it. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm beyond the point of kid-gloving people that don't care. Yeah, I know we all once didn't know. But one thing I've never been is a person that was a denier. I wanted someone to give me the knowledge. I was looking for people that knew information. Long before there was ever even any thought of the Internet. When you had your local city library that you could go to, and where I lived as a kid, in a rural, suburban Kansas town, it, I mean, there's not a whole lot of information. Hell, I was looking for uh, Frederick Douglass's autobiography four or five months ago, and my local library here don't even have it. So you are you kidding me? It's two, well, at that time, it was 2014, and you don't have Frederick Douglass's autobiography in the local damn libraries here? We got two in, two or three in this town. We got one that's attached to the university, to the uh, the the. It's like a D two school, but it's still a, a college, a university, and then two regular city libraries here. And doing a search from the main branch, they don't carry that book. So you tell me, back in the eighties and the nineties, how were you going to get knowledge of you know very deep information or whatever, just as a person that really wanted to research? So thank God for the internet. Because you can research this type of thing. You can find out for yourself. But I was never a denier. So that's just a personality flaw I have, I guess, that I tend to, if I see you just defending it, because I'm not a liar. That's something I'm not trying to lie to you. I'm not trying to, to, to get you. What do I get if you become an abolitionist? I mean, other than helping our society. But there's no, I don't get paid for this. 
There's no nothing in this for me. I just don't want it to be my children's future. I don't want it to be hanging out over my head. I don't want these conditions existing where I live. I have a faith. I have a particular faith that I don't want to answer for that in my judgment. I believe after I die, there will be some things be shown to me. Some stuff I chose to do that I shouldn't have done. I should have known better. I did know better. There's going to be some things shown to me that I never even realized. And I still going to have about that. But things that I can control, that I can know about and I can make a decision about, I am about doing those things because I don't want to answer. I don't want to answer for America's wars. I turned down a full-ride scholarship to the United States Military Academy at West Point. At 17 years old, after going through the process of being recruited, after getting the senators to send me recommendation letters, after getting my congressman to send a letter, after taking all the tests, going through all the loops or whatever, I talked to my grandfather, a drafted World War II veteran. I talked to my father, a drafted Vietnam veteran. They both told me we were drafted. If you're intelligent enough, your grades enough, you got a future ahead of you, you can go where you want to go. I wouldn't tell you you had to take this. Although it would be very prestigious and you get a great education, we would be proud. But war. Here I stand, a man not free, whip markers on my back, shackles on both feet, picking cotton in the stone heat, pray the Lord my soul keep, for one day he came and told me, in the year of 1831, I awoke at dawn to see his vision in the sun, it seemed that the clouds parted to the village tongue, he said my son, the revolution has begun, and with that, I knew the message was clear, kill the oppressor who kept us in prison for years, raped our women and laughed in our tears, made us build their land while I sat back in the chair. Late night, I plowed with my peers. We built weapons, no guns. We must slice them from neck to the ears with spears so they can hear the pain of a people who are God's creation, not theirs. I'm the one that they don't teach you in class about. I'm the one who ran up in the last. Okay, we're back again. I apologize for the technical issues there. Um, sometimes we, we lose the signal of the call drops, and, and we're, we're back now, though, so I apologize for that. I was ranting before I was cut off. So maybe that's the powers that be pulling the plug on my <laughs> on my speech. Um, at the same time, about the mental health uh, care issues, um, like I said, it is a fact. It's not hyperbole that America's jails and prisons have become the new mental hospitals, and that should be an issue to you. We know that recent studies say that 16% of inmates in jails and prisons have serious mental illness. Back as far as 1983, see, when we go back to the 80s and compare them to current numbers, that should be something else that pisses you off. What in the hell are they trying to convince you and me happened to human beings 
from 1983, 1984, and 85 in these years to 2015. What happened? I was alive then. I was born in 1974. I was a little kid. I had pretty good awareness of what was happening around me. I remember going and standing in line with my parents at the 1980 election. I remember the people in line having a conversation about voting for Reagan and Hayden Carter. I mean, I'm, I can remember these things. These were normal humans, our neighbors. I remember them. I remember what we ate, what we drank, where we drove, you know, what kind of cars we had, what we did, where we went. I remember all that. But what I don't remember is people being criminals to the 1,000th power because we went from 200,000 people in prison during those times to 2.3 million people. And the same thing with the mentally ill. In 1983, a study reported that a percentage was 6.4% of the mentally ill in prisons. So in less than three decades, the percentage of seriously mentally ill prisoners has tripled. So this is consistent with reports that 40% of individuals with serious mental illness have been in jail or in prison at some time in their life. In 1955, there was one psychiatric bed for every 300 American. In 2005, there's one for every 3,000 Americans. In a historical perspective, we've returned to the early 19th century when mentally ill prisons, persons filled our jails and prisons. At that time, a, report, a reform movement sparked by Dorothea Dix led to a more humane treatment of mentally ill persons. And for over 100 years, mentally ill individuals were treated in hospitals. We've now returned to the conditions of 1840s. So here we got two straight segments. We talk about the labor. We can go back to 1850 and show you the exact same, same damn thing. We talk about the mentally ill and the treatment in this country, what we've got going on, what our policy is, what we're doing. Not what you think, not what you believe uninformed, what you take for granted, they got a saying they told me coming up, don't expect what you don't inspect. That's what they used to raise me about. My dad would drop that on me, and I didn't understand it. And then I'd you know, start figuring it out because when my stuff wouldn't be right, because I just thought it was going to be a certain way. No, it ain't going to be a certain way unless you make it a certain way. So America, don't expect what you don't inspect. When we can go back to 1840 and tell you that, we were doing the exact same damn thing. And you can deny to me that what I say is true. And I can show you clearly that the same thing and worse is going on. You need to inspect what you're expecting out of your nation. You need to inspect what you are expecting out of your laws, out of your lawmakers, out of your business owners, your politicians. You need to inspect what you expect out of them. Because in the 1840s, that's what they did was put mentally ill people in jails and prisons. So I will put this um, this report on the page also and give it to you for you to be able to look over and, and um, see for yourself. I mean, the information, it's there. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. That's the thing. That's why I get so high. That's why I get so excited about this. The information is there. We're not in the dark. We're not lost. We know what's going on. 
because we have people that are working on PhDs. We have people that are deep researchers. Social anthropologists digging beneath the surfaces and finding the old fossils and the information, cleaning it up and making it available to us. And there's no political agenda. The truth. I am not a politically inclined person one way or another. I really could give a damn. My first time voting in 1992, I voted for Ross Perot. I didn't believe Bill Clinton. I didn't want Bush. I'll tell you the truth. I, you know, that's just how I saw it as a young dude. This is what I thought. Well, this guy seems like he's being honest. He's already got a billion dollars, so he don't need to steal nothing from me. Then I watched Clinton have two terms. 2000, I got back out there in the voting booth. I didn't want George Bush. I had watched what was going on in Texas. I saw that, and I didn't like what I saw in Texas. And Richards, and then George Bush. So I kind of was a little bit in the know, and I didn't like him. I didn't like his dad. His father was a part of why I didn't go to West Point, as I was saying before I got cut off. I didn't want to be in the same war Scotty Reed went to. He just he tells us on New Abolitions Radio all the time the conditions and what he went through and what he decided finally that this ain't me. I decided that before I went in. I was going to. It would have been a great opportunity. Four years of school, six years enlisted. You come out as a lieutenant. You get the ring, you got the money, you got the education, you, the world is your oyster. But I wasn't interested in going to Kuwait. I wasn't interested in going over there and, and being a part of that. I knew even then a little bit of information about it. I didn't want to be a part of that. I didn't want to be killing people. Not for those reasons. And so to this day, I'm not a political part. I'm not a left or right or whatever. I just want the truth. I just want you to know what's going on, and you pick where you stand. Look, I don't care. Johanna, I heard it. Hey, man, I know what you're talking about. It it sucks. I hear people say that sometimes, and I'm fine with that. I have respect for you. I hear people say it like that. Yep, I understand everything you're saying. It sucks. It's messed up. But right now, I'm not worried about that. I don't want to face that. I can't deal with that. I'm trying to figure out how to do this. Okay, I respect that. But these deniers, they go with the oppressors. So when you hear me say peace to the abolitionists and death to the internet oppressors group, you're oppressing us with your ignorance. You're oppressing us with your indifference. You allow it to proliferate. So moving on, Scotty's going to give me a minute or two because of our technical difficulties to go ahead and cover the uh, unexplainable black death and, and give a shout out to Free Alabama is our abolitionist of the day. So our unexplainable black death profile today is uh, young brother James Harper. May he rest in power. May he rest in peace. Um, the uh, profile says shot after leading pol police on a chase that started at a suspected drug house crossed over three fences through backyards. The police claimed that they got an anonymous call from a concerned citizen who said they had seen a black man tied up and being drugged into a house because people kidnap black people all the time. The ransom money is ridiculous. It's black people are the most kidnapped. So you you'll see that. So they go, is this their job? They have to go investigate this, if they even got such a call. Police arrived and found no evidence of any kidnapping, but they did walk in and see a gun on the table in plain view. Then they heard someone breaking glass, and they immediately thought, somebody's trying to escape. So they started chasing the person that they thought was trying to escape. 
And like I said, they chased him over three fences through the backyard and start firing shots. Because that's what you do when people try to escape. That's just what you do. Somebody called you and said somebody's being kidnapped. So you go check it out. You see a gun in the room. You hear glass break. Somebody starts running, and you chase them down, and you gun them down because that's what we do. We hold court right then and there. Judge, jury, executioner. This is what we call an extrajudicial murder. This is what the Malcolm X Grassroots Report, Operation Ghetto Storm, told us two, three years ago. It's one every 28 hours. Just yesterday, one came out about a homeless man in L.A., and they got the video. Somebody standing right there watching it. The police beating up and harassing homeless people, and one of them ends up getting shot and killed. So the address they were called to, turns out it was a suspected drug house, and after the incident, cops suggested that the call. So the cops said themselves, yeah, it was probably rival drug dealers, just wanted us to come bust these guys. Oh, well, too bad we killed this guy. In another case, like we opened up the program, and I went on at length for a reason about Attica, is there's no criminality associated with this. They didn't do anything wrong, according to our laws. So, peace to Brother James Harper. I'm not his judge. I don't know what he was doing. Hell, I was a young man. Before I got to this stage, obviously, I made it for a while. I don't have any problem admitting to you that I did not make the best decisions all the time. I had plenty of friends that were in the drug game. We all thought we wanted to be rappers. We all wanted to play basketball. We all wanted to be around the, 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 the guy that had the weed or whatever. I mean, we, we were young dudes. We weren't thugs. We weren't doing anything to anybody, but we thought we were tough. We thought we were doing our thing. So, yeah, I spent some time. Hanging out in the drug house, I knew my friend sold a little weed on the side, and I'd be over there, he'd cut hair also. People come through, get haircuts, get a dub sack, and move on with their day. We listen to good music. We made music. Might stop and get some beer or something, and we spend our afternoon doing what we wanted to do. We wasn't bothering anybody. But by the law, or by like a story like this told posthumously after this man is murdered, I could have been murdered in a drug house, too. So I don't discount these people's testimony. I don't discount these people's stories for the way that the media tries to portray them, because it could have been me. And that's why I'm an abolitionist, because it could have been me. God forbid it could be my sons. It could be my nephews. I made it through, but what if they don't make it through? I can't be there to make every decision for them. I can't be there to protect them from every little thing that can happen. But what I can do is fight against modern-day slavery and the incentive that the 13th Amendment puts in our Constitution makes it legal to incentivize incarceration in spite of ever-dropping crime rates. That's what I can do, and that's what I'm going to do. So we'll wrap up with our... Uh, Shout out to the Free Alabama Movement. Uh, won't be as in-depth as, as I anticipated. I apologize, you know, to, to them. That, that I owe them more than giving them just a couple of minutes at the end because you could best believe these are individuals on the literal front lines. We know what happened to Brother Melvin Ray. We know the reports that came out after he came out and tried to tell us and tried to beg for our help and solidarity and fighting for their human rights to be restored, for them to stop being tortured and enslaved from what I, reports I got from, from the situation. The brother was poisoned, 
spent a lot of time in infirmary and a lot of time in solitary. Took a lot of beatings. So this has affected my heart over this last weekend, especially after covering these stories in Wallace County, where these are the immigrants new to the country. And the first stop they make is in prison. And the first thing they get to do is be enslaved and get to doing some slave labor. Fight off scorpions and spiders and ticks and because they're living in open air tents. 200 men to per tent, 2,000 men in 20 tents with three feet or less of space in between each individual bunk stacked high. And that's your life plus the slave labor plus the beatings, plus the rape. And the same thing with the Free Alabama Movement. These brothers are down here facing the worst of the worst, and they know themselves what this is. In an interview from Decarcerate the Garden State, part of the the Decarcerate New Jersey Movement, they actually spoke just a, a couple of days ago, they actually spoke about the situation and about their work stoppage that they were going to do. Yeah, spokesperson Ray, Brother Kinetic, shout out to them. They spoke with them at length about the situation. I'll just give you his, his brief words, tying it to slavery again, and then we'll uh, we'll let the let the program ride. Uh, says first question he asked them, uh, what do you see as the main motivators of mass incarceration? The response, at the heart of mass incarceration, we see economics. It's so much money involved, so many jobs across all branches of government, and now private businesses have access to this market of human capital that can be forced into free labor that that, that produces hundreds of billions of dollars worth of products and services. The money that's being made off of mass incarceration is just massive. What they say is a crime is a crime. Whoever they say is guilty is guilty. The Constitution only applies to who they say it applies to. Businessmen and women write laws like mandatory minimums to make sure that you stay long enough to pay for college for their children and to pay for their children to finish college. And when the police in New York went on protests and stopped making petty crime arrests, the first people that started complaining were defense attorneys and bail bondsmen. Mass incarceration is all about the money, and many people are getting paid big. The only other main factor is race, because someone has to serve the rich and provide the free labor. And in America, we already know how that works. The exception in the 13th is there for a reason. Right there is where you find the heart of mass incarceration. Either slavery or involuntary servitude is an expression of economic principles. So economics is where you have to look to find the solution. We see McDonald's, Bob Barker, Koch Brothers. Alec, Wells Fargo, Walmart, Wendy's, the U.S. military, Dick Cheney, AT&T, you name a company, and all of them are using prison labor. We know it when uh, vulture capitalists, like some of these names who we see, are hovering over private prisons or over private factories. Then that tells you all you need to know. Mass incarceration is about money. So stand in solidarity with these brothers and with the sisters supporting them, with the families that they represent. 
Stand in support. Remember them in your prayers. Remember them in your conversations at the work workplace uh, water cooler. Remember them as you uh, go back and forth. If you go to prayer meeting or if you teach in the Sunday school or whatever, just throw it out there to your pastor. Just maybe you see if you can get that added to the to the prayer list. I don't know. Find a way to support these people to to help them just get the basic human rights that have been stolen from them returned. And let's take this situation about uh, slavery seriously, because all this money being made, it's not just happenstance. Check out the uh, the new abolitionist um, radio Facebook page, the abolitionist daily Facebook page, the move to abolish 21st century slavery is our Facebook group, which is, I think, now hovering somewhere around 1,400 members. It is an action group. We share a lot of information but it is ultimately a call to action group we have these people that are there that we know when we put out a call to action like this like with the free alabama support these people we put that call to action out there and we get a response we get the calls to the wardens we get the emails we get the calls we get people going out seeing about these individuals because we try to save lives whenever we can check out the new abolitionist radio twitter page new abolitionist radio n-a-r end slavery or just put in New Abolitionist Radio in the search bar. It'll come up. Um, email me, newabolitionistradio at gmail.com. I think I got everything covered. Scotty Reed, appreciate the overtime. Remember to support the Black Talk Radio Network fundraiser 2015. Without you, there is no us. So if you don't want dead air on the radio, pony up. We need you. Peace to the abolitionists and death to these oppressors. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.